Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. We're recording in the morning. <laughs> yes, we are. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 32, Pope Marcellus I. Yeah, not Marcellinus like last week. Yep, this is not deja vu. This is a pope with a very similar name. And uh, last week was a pretty wild ride. So, do you have any predictions for our next very similarly named Pope Man? Well, he's probably gonna... Oh, nope, everybody's just dying. So he's just gonna die. Well, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> he is not still alive today, so... I Well, I mean, I don't know if he's gonna do anything else in between there. I think maybe he's gonna go... I'm Pope, and then die. That's an accurate prediction. Maybe not so much for Marcellus, but, um... Very, very soon. So, okay. <laughs> but we have something really exciting to start off with this week. And that is that we actually have a birthday. Ah! Oh, yeah. Yeah, he has a birthday. It may not actually be historically verifiable by any means, but it does actually give us enough of a reference point for ages. And because we do not have that in any of our previous popes, we're going to run with it. So uh, he was born in Rome on January 6th of 255, and his father's name was either Marcellus as well or Benedictus, depending on what version of the Liber Pontificalis that you reference. They're not the same at all, so I don't know how that happened, but we have a birthday. We have some discord on his father's name, and that's literally all we have about his early life, so at least it was something. Well, I mean, we can do the assuming bit where he joined the church at some point and rose through the ranks. Yeah, and, and we can acknowledge again that this is a period of intense flux and records destruction, so nothing has survived from the church, so even though we don't have anything, it probably existed at some point, so there's that. Pope Marcellinus died in 304, and like we mentioned at the end of his episode, the persecutions were in heavy-duty mode, enough that they prevented the election of a successor for four years. Yeah. Huge gap. Like, we don't, we don't have any popes for four years, so that's probably the biggest Sede Vicante that we've seen so far. Yeah, what was the other long one before Fabian? How long was that one? So after Fabian died, we have a Sede Vicante of 14 months, and that's the longest one we've seen so far. And now we have four years. So a big jump, <laughs> huge gap. And the Liberian catalog tells us it isn't until May of 308 that Marcellus is actually able to assume the papacy. I am going to read a couple lines here from an article by Deborah Booten-McCoy on Pope Marcellus because she summarizes pretty well what sort of situation that Marcellus was coming into, what might have been going on for him during the actual Sede Vicante, and what made him the best candidate to take over as Pope. So this is what she says. The Bishop of Rome was dead in 304. Diocletian's persecution was in full force. Meeting places were confiscated as well as some of the burial grounds. People were in fear of being caught at mass or other services, and the presbyters were in hiding when not needed. The Christian church was torn apart. Daily activities could not be conducted, and life was interrupted for several years. There was no bishop for the faithful to rally around, 
and it is said that Marcellus the deacon was doing what he could at the time to keep the fatherless flock together. So this man is doing the best that he possibly can in the absence of an official leader to try and keep people who are scattered and hiding and don't want to show up for services or who are being killed. He's trying to keep everyone together to the best of his ability. So we know that things are really awful and terrible for the Christians, but it turns out that things are not going well for the rest of the empire either. So after Diocletian does the voluntary abdication thing with Maximian in 305, things destabilize pretty quickly, and the two Augusti and two Caesars are no longer working together, and in some cases, they are fighting against one another for control. So we're talking like massive civil war abounding everywhere. And one of the consequences that we've seen before is that in the tumult of the empire leads to a little bit of a break for the Christians, and we're going to see this happen here again. So with the two old Caesars becoming the two new Augusti and the two new Caesars being appointed, one of these Caesars is a man called Maxentius, who was the son of the abdicated Maximian, and he becomes the head figure in Rome at the time. So this is why he's important to our story, because even though he's a junior emperor, he's who actually has control of Rome. And he becomes a pretty controversial leader and ends up almost immediately in civil war with the other Augusti and Caesars. And this briefly means that things ease up on the Christians and they're going to have a little bit of a chance to kind of get themselves together. I mean... We're still to the tune of thousands of Christians dead across the empire, and most of the churches and cemeteries are still gone, but... You said like 17,000? Yeah, that 17,030 days is as of Galerius becoming the Augusta. Again, those numbers come from Christian sources, so we have to... They might not be accurate, but it is still like a huge reference point for how bad things are. But right now, everybody's fighting each other, so they're not paying attention to the Christians so much. They don't have their property back. They don't have any type of safety, but they're able to just do a little bit of a creep to get back on their feet. Now, that being said, we're going to shine a little bit of hope on this situation because these persecutions are the last persecutions on a statewide sponsored level that we are going to see with the Christians before the empire becomes Christian as a whole. Statewide sponsored. What a phrase. It's it, but it is true. This is but this is the last one. This is the last of this type of persecution that we are going to see for the Christians as a whole okay. before Rome becomes a Christian empire. Obviously, the people who are going through this at the moment could have had no way of knowing that in 20 years, the empire was going to be very, very different. Man, 20 years is so long. Remember 20 years ago? Yeah, I was nine <laughs> 20 years ago. So yeah, I mean, everything could change. And there's no way that they could have known that in that time, things were going to be as different as they could have possibly imagined. So we're talking on a purely hindsight basis here, but... You know, things are bad, and we need to just put a little bit of hope in there for these poor people. So bear that in mind. We're about 20 years away from the conversion at this point, if you can believe that. Which is nuts. So despite the interruption of Christian life on an 
absolute level, uh, Marcellus does finally become Pope while things are falling apart for the rest of the Empire, and he's able to start nudging Christianity back on some way of an organized path. So Marcellus is the equivalent of that this is fine dog, but with a Pope hat on. Absolutely. That's, that is exactly who he is right now. And he is going to try his best. And one of the major things that he does to accomplish this is a full administrative reorganization. This is what you need. Wow. Didn't we do that already, like, a couple popes ago? I know, I know. We have this whole Rome divided into districts every six or seven popes, and it seems a little bit repetitive. But we have to remember that the church has been absolutely decimated, and the Christian population has inevitably shifted and changed. So in order to regroup and rebuild and whatnot, you have to get everyone back together, and then you have to take all of those responsibilities that you have had in the past and kind of redistribute it to where there are actual Christian people now who can actually occupy that role. So it's pretty important for the time, even though, yes, we have absolutely done this before. So this happens so much. <laughs> it does. We've had the tituli. We've had we've had all of these districts built before, but the way that he's going to do it based on the population that they have now and the people they have that are still part of the Christian faith, he is going to redivide Rome into the 25 districts, tituli, and then he appoints each district a presbyter who is responsible for all of those religious details of the titulus, including burial for Christians, the commemoration of martyrs, overseeing public penances, and baptism preparation for the catechumens, which are the um, people who are getting ready to join the faith. So whereas those things would have been handled by a level of different people before, he's now putting one person in every district in charge of that, because that's all they have in terms of people. So also, Marcellus secures the development of a new cemetery for the burial of Christian martyrs, because they need it, and this will become known as the Cemeterium Novelice on the Via Solaria, which is right across the road from the Catacomb of Priscilla, where Marcellinus was buried. So by this point, we can understand just how significant these places of burials were to the Christians, so to be able to actually get a new one started would be a huge morale booster for the church and get them back into daily Christian life. As weird as that sounds that they would be really excited about a cemetery. I'm so excited about this place dead people go. Yeah, but I mean, this is a place where they actually, you know, it's not just where they bury them. They go there to commemorate the, the sacrifice mm -hmm. of the martyrs. They have services there. So for them, this is uplifting in, in a way. How goth of you. The church is in a pretty gothic time. I mean, they can have all of the angst and emo that they want as well. I think you could just have a whole bunch of scene kids hanging out. But for them, this is kind of like, okay, we've got our, we've got our church organized again. We've got a cemetery. So far, so good. Um, nobody's coming and beating down our doors yet. So this is all good, but we know how this goes. When the church stops being persecuted for a hot minute and the church is allowed to regroup, what happens next? What what happens next? <laughs> they start fighting amongst each other. No. I know, right? There There is no sense in this, but it's the same issue that was an issue before, and this time it is round two, personal. Um, 
The latest persecution was the most bloody, the most brutal, and like we said last week, it brought all of the Christians back to square one, regardless of whether they had been a lapsi or a libellatici, or just lucky to have avoided being called up, because now, you know, new sacrifices were demanded. This is, this is, had started all over. And under that circumstance, there is a whole new wave of lapsi who chose to offer incense and sacrifice to save their lives instead of martyrdom and confessing the faith. So, I mean, that's barely a choice, to be fair. Well, think about it. At this point in this new round of persecution, it had already been established clearly that the church would take them back after a bit of penance. So now it's not just, oh my god, if I survive this, I'm an apostate and I absolutely cannot come back to my faith. They know that this is something that the church has said that they will accept back. You just have to do penance. It is the church's policies. They will take you back. And Marcellus is clarifying this point. He's saying, yes, you do need to undergo strict public penance. But that's all the church asks for you to be welcomed back into communion. Please don't die. Yeah, he's saying, don't die. It's an awful thing that you've done if you're an idolater or an apostate, but we are accepting you back. There's only like 10 of you. Please don't die. I mean, it's probably less of a crisis of conscience that these people are facing. So when they get to that point, they go, I don't want to die. I'm going to do this. And then my church will forgive me. Mm-hmm. We've got a big group of lapsi now. That's fine. It makes sense. However, this is where things start to get a little weird. You see, the lapsi start to gather together at this point, now that they're safe from the persecution because they have their certificates or whatever, but they're clearly outside of the church until they perform their penance. And the primary sources allude to these lapse individuals gathering around a leader who might have been called Heraclius, but that's all I could find. So this Heraclius, he's kind of gathering the lapsi, and he's allegedly an apostate, according to the church sources, but not during this persecution. Somehow he lapsed out of the church before these persecutions. So he's just like an apostate who apostatized, not during a persecution, not under fear of death, just kind of renounced Christianity and we don't know why. No reasons are given. He's just four reasons. So, again, there's no really concrete evidence about this person, and we only think that he's even called Heraclius based on a reference to some opposition to our next pope by someone called Heraclius, so we can't even really be sure if he's the leader of the Lapsi or not, but I have looked through tons of translated primary sources and secondary academic books, and I have turned up squat on this dude. He exists. He is their leader. This is kind of where we're going with this. And... These lapsi who have gathered around him decided that they should be able to rejoin the church without performing public penance or oh. any penance whatsoever for that matter. So they are demanding to be readmitted, no price paid, and uh, that's what you need to do for us. So, you know, there there is even some suggestions that because of the way that Marcellus had reorganized the church, these lapsi couldn't actually find priests who were willing to waive their penance and give them communion, you know, because maybe they had been able to skirt the rules before and kind of get in with no penance and 
that because they're, the church has been reorganized and reconfirmed and brought back together, uh, that no longer existed. And oh no, qualified people are doing the job they're supposed to do. Oh dear. So they are extremely upset that they are actually going to be held to account for their penance. And they demand that the Pope should do away with that. Just let us back in. We don't want to do penance. You should uh, ju- you should just accept us, right? No. Like, that's how it should happen. Lazy people. Exactly. It's just kind of a very strange thing that's happening here. And Pope Marcellus says, no way. Are you kidding? Like, we're already accepting you back in when you've committed, like, the two most grave sins in our religion, idolatry and apostasy. And uh, you just want to come in willy-nilly? No, no. He takes a very hard line against this, which makes sense because the church is already being lenient. And yes, he, he does argue that the penance that these people have to perform needs to be public, which is, you know, maybe some people think this is harsh, but considering the church literally went to schism to make sure that the lapsi could be brought back at all, he doesn't see this as being unreasonable. You know, strict penance is part of the Christian faith. It's not just for punishment. Like, this is something that exists for many, many aspects of the Christian faith. Not just for these lapsi people. Penance is a thing. Like, you guys are getting off easy. He's saying no. Like, no, absolutely not. Unfortunately, we don't have the perspective of the lapsi to use here at all because they're not the ones recording down church history. But we do have a poetic tribute to Marcellus by the future Pope Damasus, which was left in an inscription over his grave that gives us some of this sentiment of what's going on at the time. Even though we're not talking about his death yet, we're going to read his epitaph. So it says, Because the truthful bishop required that the lapse bewail their sins, he was regarded as the bitter enemy of all poor wretches. Hence anger, hence hatred, discord, quarrels, mutiny, slaughter accompany him. The bonds of peace are dissolved. Because of another sin, who denied Christ in peacetime, he was driven from his homeland by the ferocity of a tyrant. Damasus wished briefly to record these details which he discovered so that the populace can recognize the merit of Marcellus. This tells us how these people are feeling, how Marcellus is responding, but it also tells us what happens next. That anger, hatred, discord, quarrels, and slaughter. That that bit. So these lapsi who think, you need to just let me into the church without penance, and Marcella says no, they get very, very violent. Riots spread across the city. Why? Why are you like this? Now you're murdering. Yeah, it's not good. We don't have details on specific acts of violence, but we have words used like blood was shed it's serious and widespread and well now you have to do penance for that right and and this is the best one it says every bond of peace was utterly broken Uh. this is not a good time this is a super severe reaction that is disrupting the church on a level that we have not yet seen from christians to christians i mean we're gonna see so so much of that later But we have not had a church that's divided and committing violence yet. So this is entirely unprecedented and not what you want when you're reestablishing a church. Why did they decide to listen to this herky-derky guy anyway? (laughs) Well, exactly. Who is this man? 
And why is he here? And, you know, if he didn't lapse under the persecutions, he's not even in the same boat as most of these people. So we don't really know. So this is not a good time. And obviously, this level of violence is not going to go ignored by the Empire. You know, all of these Christians are rioting in your city. You've got enough crap to deal with. So Maxentius is absolutely not okay with these Christians that he's kind of just let exist because he's kind of dealing with other crap. And now they're breaking into violent riots out in the street. So he's going to place the fault of this squarely on Marcellus's shoulders. I mean, to be fair, he's supposed to control them. Mm-hmm. And he can't control them. So Maxentius has him seized and exiles him. Oh, where? Does he get to go to the beach? We don't actually know where he's going to go this time, unfortunately. Um, we know it's not to the mines, which is, I mean, probably a good thing. Oh yeah, I forgot that the mine was a thing. There is a conventional legendary account told by the church that pops up sometime in the 5th century in one of those apocryphal acts of the martyr documents, you know, the Passio Marcelli, which also makes an appearance in the Acts of St. Siricius, so we don't have solid facts to go on, but we'll tell this story because it's all we have. According to this version of his banishment and death, when Maxentius summons Marcellus to answer for all the violence caused by the lapsi in the city, he also then says, hey, by the way, you haven't done that sacrifice thing, so you gotta do that for me now. Oh no, wait. Yeah. I thought, okay, well I thought the legend last week was like, he did the thing and then he handed a bunch of documents to somebody. Yeah, well and this this would be after all of that anyways. So the, he's now being pulled back up and saying, hey, you gotta do the thing. And Marcellus does not follow in Marcellinus's alleged footsteps and refuses to do so. And so his punishment is not death, but that he is exiled to work as a stable slave at a waypoint called a catabulum on the one of the public roads in the empire. So basically, it's the ancient equivalent of like an inn on the highway. I mean, that doesn't sound so bad. Like, I love horse husbandry. Uh, Marcellus didn't so much, and either this worked him to death based on exhaustion and poor conditions, or, according to this legend, he did this for nine months as, you know, a horse husbander. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the right phrase in there, but I mean, I just listened to Saga Things' epi latest episode where, where John used the phrase horse fornication sandwich. And, um, I don't know how you get a sandwich. How is there? I don't want to know. Oh, you, you have to listen to the episode. They will tell you how you can get to be the meat in a horse fornication sandwich. Not even like a train. It's a sandwich. Yep. So um, he does this for nine months and then he gets set free only to find himself back in trouble when a Christian woman called Lucina has him come to her house and consecrate it as a church called the Titulus Marcelli, which, you know, re-provoked Maxentius to send him back to the stable to work again until he died. I told you to husband those horses. Why are you consecrating churches? I said, don't do that stuff. So this legend is also kind of sort of included in the Liber Pontificalis because it says he died in the service of animals wearing only a hair shirt. Did he maybe comb it off of the horse <laughs> and fashion it himself? He could have. I remember last time we talked about hair shirts, you hated it so much, so. 
He died basically in penance, serving animals in exile. I do like the DIY culture, so perhaps he made it himself. It would be warmer, I think, than most of the things that they would give him. Either way, whether he just died the first time or he did get free and then got himself into more trouble and then went back and died, he dies in January of 309 at the age of 54 because we have a birthday and we can say that now. His body is brought back to Rome when it is safe to do so, and since the new cemetery that he had founded was not quite ready to bury people, he was buried in the Catacomb of St. Priscilla, just like Pope Marcellinus, within the Basilica on the grounds, which is called the Basilica of St. Sylvester. And just like Marcellinus, his grave becomes a hot spot for traveling pilgrims and shows up on 7th century itineraries of the Graves of Martyrs. Itineraries, like they have a whole tour group. They absolutely do. This is big business. Big travel business in the 7th century. Now, at some point, though we don't, it's not dated, so we can't be sure of when, his remains do get moved to San Marcello al Corso in Rome a church that is named after him, and the church that stands here today was founded in the 8th century by Pope Adrian and is said to occupy the same spot as the Titulus Marcelli house, that one that he had consecrated and gotten in trouble for, even though that house was destroyed sometime in the 4th century, so we have to take their word for that? And his remains are still under the altar here, as far as we can determine, and it's a really beautiful church. I visited when I was in Rome, and I have a photo for you, apparently. Ooh, a photo. Ooh, this isn't even the FaceTime. No, no, this is just his church. It's pretty, and it's it's quite impressive. In wow, Rome. that's a lot of marble columns. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's the church named after him, so that's pretty cool. And finally, we're going to wrap up Marcellus's life with a little academic tidbit that I stumbled on while doing this research. Theodore Momsen, who is a classical historian and archaeologist from the late 19th century, who we've talked about a few times on this podcast, he didn't actually believe that Marcellus was ever Pope. Oh. He argues that Marcellus was only ever a simple Roman presbyter that somehow got tasked with the administrative reorganization of the church while they were still in sede vacante, but that he was never officially elected. If you're doing Pope jobs, are you not the Pope? Right, exactly. I mean, I couldn't find any other historians who agree with him on this, but uh, just to throw it in at the end, this man who had this hard time as Pope maybe was never Pope, according to this one historian. So, just a thing. I, I, we're calling him a Pope. He is officially listed as a Pope absolutely everywhere else, so whatever. And, uh... That That is the last thing we're going to say and plant all this doubt in your mind before we rate him. Oh, why you got to do that to me? Well, I got to give you all of the information, you know. Papatum infallium. The issue of the lapsi with their demands is going to continue to be a problem for the church. But we have to look at this as both good and bad. In the good category, we can consider for Marcellus that he was very moderate. He was faced with this horrible situation, and he did not cut them out. And he maintained consistency with all of his predecessors. He demanded penance, and he upheld what was meant to be a strong tradition in the position of the church. To be fair, the lapsi are not technically... They're more secular now, because they haven't done the penance yet. True, 
but they want to be Christian, right? They want to be accepted into communion. They believe that they have that right. So they, they would consider themselves Christians and they feel like they're being unfairly barred. But he's saying, look, no, we're not trying to keep you out. We're just saying that this is the next step you have to take in order to come back. They're just being lazy. And if they want to be lazy, they can be not Christian. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I side with Marcellus on this one. I think he was very, very fair with them because he could have just been like, no, if you're going to be that way, we're going to pull a novation. You know, mm -hmm. it wouldn't have been that hard. So that's the good part of it. At least, you know, he's upholding this strong tradition and he's being very fair. The bad is that this leads to the first instigated violence of Christian on Christian. So um, that's not good. Is that his fault? We have to consider. Uh, it's not his fault. He was following the rules. I, I agree. I don't think we can hold him accountable for that. But um, the other part we need to consider is that he reorganized the church and developed new cemeteries. So that that's going to earn him at least a point or two. So what do you want to give him for this? I can give him a two, probably. Like, honestly, those people being brats aren't really his fault. He didn't do yeah. He didn't urged them to be brats by making new rules or something. It was always the rules. Exactly. I, and I agree with you. I'm going to give him a three. I'm going to give him two for upholding that position because we've seen what happens when popes don't, a la Pope Stephen, being a scumbag and just making everything more complicated. Yeah, just being like, I don't know, I feel like this today. So he's going to get a two for me for being consistent um, and standing up and not doing, you know, not apostatizing. And he's going to get a point for the reorganization of the church. So I'm going to give him a three in total, and that'll give him a five for Papatum and Pallio. Fructus prohibitum. Do we give him scandal points because he couldn't control the lapsi? He has Christians instigating violence in the empire. I mean, I might give him one just because he was there. That's possible. You could, you can, you can give him a one if you want. And if you give him a one... I'm going to give him a zero because I think the most he can get in this category for Christian violence is a one total. So just because he was there, not because it was necessarily his fault. Exactly. So, you know, half point from each of us, I guess. <laughs> secular rye and pactum. Obviously, the rest of the secular population is not going to look favorably on what's yeah. happening here. You know, he's aggravating the emperor for something other than just existing. So this is, this is, they do not have a good secular impact. So I think he's got to get a zero here. Yeah. All right. So a zero for seculari impactum. Fossium sanctus. Now we're actually going to look at his face. Apparently in church imagery, he's often pictured with symbols related to that whole working in a stable in exile thing, like with a donkey or with a horse or near a stable or something so something yeah okay yeah so if you walk into a church and see that that's and you see something of pope marcellus that's more likely what you're going to see just as a side note but this is this is him oh uh when i when i look at him i see like a man who's clearly being worked to death in the stables like he looks withered and haggard those collarbones are out there but not, like, strong. Yeah, more like emaciated. Very emaciated. His face looks like he's given up. This That is the this-is-fine face, for sure. <laughs> what would you like to give him? I don't even know. Like, he's got, like, a smirk and a jaunty eyebrow, but he looks like he's gonna <laughs> die. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. Oh, I'll give him, like, a three. Okay, that's what I was thinking as well. 
So I think that's a fair score, giving him a six. Maybe if he ate more. Yeah, I mean, but he's being worked to death, so they're probably not feeding him very well. Yeah, and you know, horse husbandry is a lot of muscly work. That will give him a total in this category of a 1.5. Tempest Pontificus. We have dates. Okay, so May 27th of 308 to January 16th, 309, which is eight months. So because that's close, we rounded up to a year, giving him a score of 0.25. Well, and you said he worked in the stable for like nine months? How was he Pope for eight months? But somehow... We assume that with his with his exile, he is... He quit. Ineffective. And that's also, this is the, the story of him working in the, in the stables for nine months is also a legendary story that doesn't show up until much later in the, the fifth math century. The doesn't add up. <laughs> yeah, they didn't do their research of the dates. So, yeah. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Okay, so yeah, he's a saint. Uh, January 16th is his feast day from the Depositio Episcoporum and the Roman Chronography, and they're not sure of date of death or of burial. Like, they're not sure if that's his death day or whether it's the day he was buried on, but they call that his feast day. He's not recognized anymore as having a feast day in the general calendar after that whole retooling thing, and he is not a patron saint of anything, so he's not a patron saint for horses. He, he no, because Hippolytus is oh, the you're patron right. saint of horses. Well, can we give him like mules and donkeys? We sure can. Actually, we should look up and see if there is a real patron saint of mules and donkeys. Saint Gorgonia. Saint Gorgonzola. <laughs> that that didn't actually show because it says Saint Gorg. The first thing I googled was patron saint of mules, but what comes up is Saint Gorgonia is venerated as the patron saint of people affi- afflicted by bodily ills or sickness. <laughs> what? That's not the same thing. <laughs> that is not the same thing. The patron saint of shoveling. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That that is his. So I will put that in with a little asterisk so that it says shoveling to to meet our cleanly cleanly need <laughs> to keep us out of the uh, explicit podcast. Yeah, he definitely had to do that in several aspects. All right, his total score is an 8.75. That is very low. Considering Marcelina's got a 27. I'm sorry, Marcellus. Yeah, that's disappointing. And now I need to ask you a question that I'm fairly certain I know the answer to, and that's, is he popey enough, is he pizzazzy enough, and has he made an impression on you worthy of a papal bull? No. No. There's just no way. It's sad because it's not his fault. Nothing was his fault. But on that note, we are not finished because we have thank yous to make, and we have a new patron on Patreon. So we need to relieve of their temporal punishments, Bailey Fawcett. Ooh, that's that person we made fun of. Yes, they totally took that the right way. So that's awesome. Thank you very much for becoming a patron. Ego te absolvo. And we also need to thank two podcasts that have recommended us this week. That is the Hellenistic Age podcast and the Firestarters podcast. So Thank you very much for, for recommending us to people. That is awesome. And also, like, all the people tweeting back at that BuzzFeed guy. That was a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Some people actually recommended us for that list, which is super, super cool. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what actually comes out on that list. I'm 
I'm sure that it's going to be a lot of podcasts that also already have massive, massive, massive audiences. But hey, that's cool. Just to be nominated by anyone is super, super exciting for us. So that's awesome. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. And with that, we can wrap up and say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.